This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be completely decimated and destroyed by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin, and this is episode number 20. We'd like to say thanks to iStockPhoto.com, the world's original source for affordable, user-generated, royalty-free stock images, media, and design elements. doesn't matter whether you're a designer, blogger, advertiser. It doesn't matter. They've got 8 million high-quality photos and illustrations from independent people as well as two premier collections from Veta and Agency. Now, as a 5x5 listener, we've got a special deal. Uh, go there, get 50 or more iStock credits, and you'll get a 10% discount iStockphoto.com slash 5x5 has the details. We'd also like to say thanks to MailChimp.com for continuing their support. Uh, These guys help you design email newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with the services you already use, and track your results. It's like your own personal publishing platform, free for up to 2,000 subscribers and 12,000 emails per month. How do they do that? I don't know how they do that, but check them out at MailChimp.com. Hey, John, how you doing this week? Doing pretty well, Dan. We are recording. Yeah, I don't know. You know, people, we do a lot of work in post on these shows, uh, especially when people are recording. Our, I don't even want to say it, but when people are foolish enough to record with a, a USB headset microphone. I mean, nobody nobody would do, would do that if they were serious about this. But apparently, we're both doing that this time. It'll be okay. You'll see. We'll do a lot of work in post. And why am I doing it? Because my recording studio situation is completely uh, up in the air, and I'm essentially studio-less and almost homeless. So this this week we're we're both we're on the even ground this week. So we'll see what kind of magic we can do in post. I'm sure it will be fine. So how are you? How are things going? You're headed to WWDC. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I am. I told you this before. I believe, but. You don't remember, neither do I, because we're both old men. But yeah, I can't. Be- I just can't believe you're getting on an airplane again. So yeah, soon. no, this this will be the longest plane flight I've ever taken. I'm not looking forward to it, but I think I'll survive. The lo- so you've n- you've been to WWDC before, though. I have never been. This will be my first and probably my only trip. No kidding. Yes. I, I had no idea. Wow. Your only trip. Why do you say that? So pessimistic. Because it's so expensive, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm basically taking vacation time to do this. I'm paying for my own tickets. It's just ridiculously expensive, all for what is, for me, mostly a fun trip, not really work-related or, you know what I mean? Right. So. Are there people uh, that you'll be able to meet that you haven't met before? Is that part of it as well, or...? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm sure I'll I'll see people who I've only talked to online uh, there. But I mean, the main thing that motivated me to go was that I was living in mortal fear that Lion would be released before I was able to see the videos that they normally release after WWDC. Because uh. seeing seeing WWDC sessions that's essential for me writing a decent review. Because I mean, if you look at some of my old Mac OS ten reviews, all they really are is summaries of my favorite parts of WWDC sessions. You know. It's, a, it's distilling uh, content down to a concentrated form because you have all these Apple engineers who wrote this stuff working on their presentations for you know weeks and months or however long they do it, right? Then they give their presentations, then I watch all their presentations, then I find the things that I thought were interesting and distill them further, and then you get you know a Mac OS X review. So without right. that stuff, I don't have much to go off of. I mean, anyone can click around in the OS and dig around in files, but it's much, <laughs> it's much better to have... 
you know, from the horse's mouth explaining what the new APIs are, are like and the motivation behind them and stuff like that. So I, I saw the release dates that they didn't have any announced releases. They just said summer. So I said, boy, you know, Lion could come out at any time. And Lion, the first Lion developer builds were looking pretty good in terms of stability and everything. So I'm like, well, what is this thing going to come out at WWDC before WWDC? I have to go. Otherwise, that's my only ch- maybe my only chance to get some input from actual Apple engineers about this OS before I have to publish a review. So I was kind of panicked about that. I'm a little bit less panicked now because when they did that uh, announcement that said, uh, come to WWDC to see previews of the next version of macOS 10 and iOS. So when they say previews, that makes me think the OS will not be released at the show, like for customer right. for consumers. Right. So that made me feel a little bit better. But what if, it, what if it's released a week after the show or two weeks after the show? Maybe it'll be released in a window where I, w- I wouldn't have been able to see the videos yet, even though Apple was really fast last year with the videos. I think they had them up like two weeks after the show, which was a record by far for their uh, timeliness. But I just felt like I had to go. And I've been wanting to go for years and years, and I've been talking with my wife about it. And I said, you know, someday I might want to go to this thing, and it's a week long, and it costs thousands of dollars, and, you know, it's just really a fun thing for me. And she said, well, you should go to it once, just get out of your system. And so this, <laughs> this was the year, you know. And I knew, I also knew that as soon as they announced the dates for the show, it was going to be a kind of a click the button right now and buy, not oh, like yeah. go home and talk to your wife. Like I knew it was, you know, because last year sold out so fast and this year I knew it was going to be faster. So as soon as that announcement came out, which was luckily, you know, I was awake when, when it was announced because <laughs> in Eastern time. And I, I think I made just one, either one phone call or I am to my wife did the confer- confirmation. I said, well, they've announced it. Should I do it or not? And she just said, go for it. So I did got my ticket and I'm on my way. This is exciting. This is a big day. This is a big day for Mac fans everywhere that know that you're going to be going out there and representing, you know, you, you represent Pearl. You represent <laughs> five by five. You're representing, to, you know, toaster ovens everywhere. Yeah. I, I and ours, ours tech, ours wouldn't, wouldn't chip in and send you. The ours is sending people, but they're going to be the people, you know, ours is actual staff and they're going to be working. They're going to be reporting on the show. I got. I got to be honest. I don't know. I don't know the senior. You know the big wigs up at ours, but I only know about ours because of your reviews in it. I'm not saying that they don't have any other value there. They they sure do. But I got. I became like an ours fan because of your 50 to 60 page, you know, Mac OS 10 reviews that were in there. Yeah, but they. I mean, I write so infrequently these days and it, it does it's true that a lot of people came to ours because of me but they're not staying because of me i write like two things a year for them uh and the last thing you are, I wrote you for are them, the the linus torvalds of ars technica if you want to say that i don't know i i think that's fair at, at any rate they are sending people who will be working the show and doing reporting and i will not be doing that and uh even if they had i mean i don't know i probably if they had offered to pay for like my plane ticket or something like that or, or the, the just the WWDC ticket or something in exchange for me doing some amount of work when I was there, I would have had to think about it because I really want to go there and not have to think about anything except for uh, enjoying the show, going to the sessions, and uh, doing stuff for my uh, review. Yeah. So well, I, I, I'll, I don't, I don't I'll say be... I'll say what I feel you can't say, which is shame on them. <laughs> I would not say shame on them. Of course you would not. I, I will be glad to see the people who are going out there for ours. And I think they're only going there for like three days. And I don't think they're staying for the... I don't think they even got tickets to the uh, actual conference. I think they're just going as press to the keynote. Uh, those people will be working 
much harder than I am for those three days. I'll just be smiling and enjoying and they will be, you know, typing furiously and and filing reports and stuff like that. So I'm I'm glad that they have the real professionals doing it and not me. Okay. Nice disclaimer. Yeah. We have some FU follow-up. How do you know? You don't know what we have. I'm just predicting. You're right. I don't know, but I predict it. You predict correctly, amazingly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so a little bit of follow-up. Twitter, we talked a little bit about a couple shows ago. And then the last show, we talked about uh, Twitter annotations, which were this this way you can attach arbitrary extra data to tweets out of band. Well, apparently I didn't read the page closely enough. I, I looked at it and I saw the date, and it was like from May 2010. And I didn't scrutinize it to see that they announced it in May 2010, but they didn't actually release it. So someone wrote in to tell me that, yeah, that was a great presentation way back then, but it's still not something that people can use. But on the very same day, I think this was at D9 or maybe it was someplace else, Twitter actually did announce a thing called Tweet Entities or Twitter Entities, which seemed like a reincarnation of this annotations thing. It's just basically another way to attach things out of band to tweets. Uh, And if you're using the REST API, you have to ask for it explicitly by saying include entities and it will spit you back the associated entities but they're automatically included with the streaming API. It's not clear from the very short page that I've got linked in the show notes about this tweet entities thing, whether it's something that that everybody can use when they send a tweet, or is it just something that Twitter sends back? Uh, reading the page, it makes it sound like Twitter is saying, hey, don't try parsing the URLs out of these tweets. We'll send you back these entities, which have the information that's already parsed out of it. But does that mean that the person who sent the tweet sent the entities with it or does twitter just server-side parsing out the stuff using their own you know url parsing stuff or maybe it only works with official i don't know i don't know what the entire deal is but anyway it's clear that there's some forward motion in the realm of uh, out of band data on twitter it's all still kind of tied up with in the the notion of does twitter control the platform to the degree where like is it only going to be something that twitter's official clients can use and third-party clients are out of luck because twitter doesn't really care about them anymore Uh, you know every time twitter makes an api announcement now i start thinking well is this an api thing that is only useful to twitter's official clients or or are you actually trying to encourage more third-party clients you know it's Mm. weird for a company that's been so quickly trying to pull all of the clients into itself and to take control of that to also be making API announcements because API strikes me as something that's for third-party developers, you know? So I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there. And then related to that, that came up just a little bit before we started recording was this tweet marks thing. Did you see that go by? I, I did. And I was just looking at that, but you know, I, I haven't had much time to delve into it. What, what's the story on that? Yeah. I, I, this is uh, Manton Reese, who does Tweet Library, yeah. uh, which is an, an iOS application for uh, archiving tweets. Well, he's also come out with a thing called Tweet Marks, which is right. a service for keeping the your last read status uh, in sync between different clients. So it's like a web service where other, I'm assuming other Twitter clients would use it, and they would basically use this as a big bucket to store how far along the timeline they are. So if you had three clients that all use tweet marks, anytime you pulled up a client, it would be synced to whatever your last read, whatever your last read tweet was across right. any of the clients where you read it. Now, it boggles my mind that this service is not part of Twitter. You know, this seems like something like, what, what the hell is Twitter doing if it's not providing this service? They, they, they provide an API to get tweets. They know people have clients to read them. They don't think that people are going to want to keep their, their clients in sync. Maybe they just think it's like, well, you know, they can... 
everyone has to run their own server to keep track of how far they're along there on the timeline. Well, this is at least trying to centralize it a little bit where every single Twitter client doesn't have to do its own service. They could all use this tweet marks thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but it does. The, okay. Well, I was just going to say the problem with services like this, which are really smart. I mean, this is a really great idea. This is something that's so definitively great is that at the same time that it's great, it seems like that there would be, I would think that people would hesitate as a developer, as a as a as a an app developer type person, they would hesitate to use it simply because they know that as soon as they implement it, Twitter could change it or come out with their own version of the service or whatever. What's you know, is it something you want to use in the meantime and hope that that uh that Twitter doesn't wind up just doing it or or changing the architecture in some way? Well, it has the advantage of coming from a third party. So, I mean, unless you think Manton's going to screw you, which I don't think he's going to, you know, like Twitter can't outlaw this because as far as Twitter is concerned, this is a completely separate service. It's just like storing and retrieving a number for you. There's right. nothing really Twitter related to it. They can't, they can't legally or technologically stop it from working. And as long as you trust Manton to, Manton to keep the service up and running, you know, then you're fine with it, no matter what Twitter does. Even if Twitter introduces the exact same service, well, then you have you have ample time to migrate off of tweet marks and onto right. whatever Twitter provides. You know, it's a so great I, idea. It's a I, great, and it is. It's like it's one of those perfect services that you know. You wonder why why wouldn't Twitter be doing this? And now you don't you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. But from Manton's perspective, I would be afraid that like you do all this work on this service and you get some people using it, and then you know Twitter just comes out and says, "Oh, we did that for you. You can use right. our service instead." And then you kind of do feel like you wasted your time. And maybe he just needs it for his own applications, and out of the goodness of his heart, he's uh, opening it up. Yeah. So I don't know. I this just just I just learned of this like you know an hour ago, so I yeah. really don't know much about it. He's I, right here in Austin too. That guy, man. You should get him on the show. I know him pretty well. Get him live he's- in the studio. Uh, you know, I, I debate about it because a few years ago, he said that he would send me a firewire cable, and he never did. He never made good on it, and he promised he would do it. And well, now, Sorry, he's on your enemies list now? Well, I mean, there's different... I don't really feel like I have an enemies or anything, but he's certainly not on... He doesn't have a star next to his name, let me put it that way. All right. You do, though. You have a big... St- every day, you get a, a new star, a new gold star. You know, speaking of tweet library, Manton's other thing, that's that's another service that you feel like Twitter should provide. Like, why would I need an application to keep archived right. versions of my tweets? Well, it's because Twitter lets the tweets fall off the end of the universe after, like, a couple <laughs> of days. And this this came up on Twitter uh, today uh, when the, the Twitter CEO, what is his name? Ev Williams. Not Ev Williams, no, a new no, guy. No. Was, it, was it Dorsey who was talking? Jack, Jack or, Dorsey. Someone, someone from Twitter, some big way from Twitter was talking at, I believe, also at D9. And I was reading people's tweets from his presentation and uh, i think it was joshua topolsky if i'm saying his name right yeah uh, brought up the fact that twitter search doesn't go back past five days or so and therefore it's almost useless and why where, where are old tweets basically was was his his question and i've had the same thoughts they like you know you you do all this you spend all this time tweeting and then you can't get through your old tweets unless you remember the exact url or you know you use google or some other thing to find them I mean, so, so, so to so say that they don't exist, though, it's it's not actually correct. To say that they're not actually accessible, though, is because they do exist. And like uh, an ex- an example of this is if you favorite a tweet, you can go and you you'll always see that in your favorites up to a point, right? Or or does it go away? Do those go away now too? 
I think that that if you had if you knew like the, whatever the, each tweet has an ID, if you knew the big long ID of a tweet that you made in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, I think you could pull up the page there. and and get it. But the, the the thing is, if you don't remember the exact ID, because who the heck memorizes their tweet IDs of some tweet you made last year? And you're like, well, what was that tweet that I made about you know uh, car distributor caps? And you you know you mentioned distributor cap in there, and it's probably unlikely to be you know. So you, so you go to Twitter search and you do from Syracuse right. distributor cap, and it will find no matches because that search only goes back like five or ten days. It's just useless. And so it's left to everybody else to sort of archive their own tweets. So that's why the tweet library app exists, because he was sick of that, obviously. He was sick of not being able to keep track of his tweets. He didn't want to favorite every single tweet that he wanted. Otherwise, you're favoriting every other thing. You know, sometimes you just want to be able to to find it later. I had the exact experience uh, earlier this week where somebody mentioned a tip about how to get your ios device syncing with your portable like if you're going to wwc for example and you right. you're going to bring your ipod but you're going to bring your laptop but normally you sync with your mac pro which is my case here he said oh if someone said you can just copy this file over to the new computer and then your ios device will sync with it as if it has always been syncing with it and i remember seeing that tweet go by and going i should like star that or paste it into your jimbo or do something with it so i remembered i'm like ah, i'm sure i'll be able to look it up when i you know so <laughs> so when the time came i couldn't remember who it was from and I couldn't remember what day it was on. And like, oh, do I have to go backwards through my timeline, you know, on that page where you scroll down with the infinite scroll on the Twitter website and then it loads more tweets and then you scroll down and it loads more tweets. Uh, interestingly, on Safari, by the way, if you do a search term, like, you know, command F and you type a search term and it says, okay, not found. If you scroll to the bottom of the page and it does the infinite scroll thing and it loads more tweets and you try to reinvoke the find, it will not find that word, even if that word just appeared on the page below it. I'm assuming this is a Safari bug where it doesn't notice the new DOM nodes have been added and it doesn't search them. So you have to stop, cancel the search, dismiss the little search sheet, bring it back up, type the same word again, and search again. Uh, that whole process is just ridiculous to me. And, of course, I tried the Twitter search looking for the, the keywords and either it had fallen off the end or I couldn't find it because I couldn't remember who it was from. It's just my best bet for searching Twitter these days is to go to you know Google and type site colon twitter.com and then the words I'm looking for. And then sometimes in URL colon the person's username. That's yeah. like your only hope. Uh, but yeah, so that this tweet library thing is another example of a service that, that Twitter should be providing by all rights, but uh, is not. And it, it kind of reminds me of the things in macOS 10 and even classic macOS that you thought Apple should have been providing, but were provided for years and years by third parties until Apple finally woke up and folded them in, like going all the way back to like the clock in the menu bar. Apple right. didn't even provide that. That had to be a third-party app, and they said, all right, fine, we'll put a clock in the menu bar. It's like, finally, geez, you know, how many years did that take? Or Window Shade, for example, which I believe, I, mean, I don't know, I don't know who's going to correct me. We don't have a chat room here because we're not live, but right. I believe Window Shade was, was it third-party first? I don't know. I'm getting too Window old. Shade was a third-party tool, absolutely. And then, you know what, I think it may have been, it may have been a feature in OS like eight and then it was gone and then, then it became a third party. Could that be? Oh yeah, no, no, in Mac OS 10, of course, there was never window shade and it had to be third party. We're at a loss without this chat room. Yeah, it was an insanity, but I'm talking about like before it appeared in, in, uh, you know. Oh, like originally. Yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, there've been all sorts of features that that were third party. You know, that right there is going to result in like 50 emails. That's all right. All right. And actually, I don't think anyone is old enough to remember that any better. Because anyone who was there is going to be our age and not remember it well. And anyone That's else, right. you know, the young people are going to go to Wikipedia and try to look it up, uh, feel free. Uh, but anyway, this is another example of a platform owner not implementing features that everyone else thinks are obvious and third parties. I guess third parties get the advantage of, you know, 
filling that void for a period of time. Like if you're looking to archive tweets, tweet library is, you know, it's a chance for Manton to, to uh, have a business off of something that Twitter is not doing. But on the other hand, you're just waiting for that day where the platform owner says, yeah, we're folding that in now. The sort so, of Damocles. So listen, I, I actually found Windows Shade Wikipedia entry. Uh, it debuted in System 7.5, but disappeared in Mac OS 8 when the feature was implemented as part of the Appearance Manager. A widget was added to the title bar to reproduce the functionality. The entire feature disappeared with the release of Mac OS 10. Since Windows could be minimized to the dock or moved aside with Exposé, Apple decided there was no more use for it. However, served several third-party utilities, such as Windows Shade 10 uh, for Unsanity's application enhancer software, have brought the concept of the window shade back to the macOS. It has since reappeared as a commercial hacksy and offers other features like translucent windows and minimize in place. It stems itself stems from a third-party utility originally written for system 6.0.7 by Rob Johnston. There you go. Apple happen. purchased the rights to this software from the developer for use in system 7.5. That's what maybe, I was thinking maybe of. Maybe Manton just wants to get acquired by Twitter. That's his whole thing. My old man's memory is not entirely failing me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I actually just got off Windows Shade. It took me a long time to get off that. How many years into it? This is, what, almost eight, nine, ten years into me <laughs> using Mac OS X, and I finally ha- finally forced myself to give it up. Not because I didn't like it anymore, but just because I, I it was the last thing on my system that was running a you know in-memory uh, patcher thing. Uh well, second to last, I'm still running Saft and Safari because they refuse to restore uh, the previously open windows when I launch it. Maybe you can do that with the Safari that. extension now. Yeah, I know. I, I I just prefer Saft for a couple other reasons. Uh, but yeah, the, the uh, Saft uses Symbol, which is a similar memory patching thing. Uh, but uh, the window shade was the last one that I was using that was system-wide, and I finally figured, well, if I, if I can wean myself off of that, then I can just remove that entire framework, and I did it, and it made me kind of sad. Uh, I'm so glad those guys made that, though, because I don't know how I would have lived without it for all those years. Even now, occasionally I click, a, double-click a title bar and then quietly frown as the window minimizes to the dock, and I remember, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not there anymore. Do you, are you a minimizer or are you a hider? I never minimize window, almost never minimize windows to the dock. I used to window shade windows a lot, Sometimes just to peek behind them, sometimes just to get them mostly invisible, but still be able to find them quickly. Uh, but I, since I don't have window shade anymore, yeah, I will hide others and, or option click away from an app. I still use classic window layering, by the way. I don't think many people still do that or even know what it is. But uh, that, that's the idea that when you click on any window from an application, all the windows of that application come to the front. That's the way it used to work in classic macOS. And sort of my habits are uh, predicated on that ability. I always have like one window of an application poking out from behind the clutter so I can quickly get to, you know, for example, my terminal windows. There's usually one window that is skinny and to the far right of the screen so I can just poke its little edge and it will come f- and it will bring not just that terminal window forward but all of them forward. And I have a modifier click in Mac OS 10 that lets me override that reversity behavior. Uh, the default of Mac OS 10 without any extensions or anything is that when you click on a single window, just a single window comes to the front and I, I can't work like that. I suppose I could train myself to do it, but I would probably slowly go insane. Uh, I don't know. You can click the dock, the icon, to make all the windows of the application come to the forward. It's just it's just a question of habits and, and muscle memory, and I'm not, you know. I have workflows, man, and they, they've been honed over, what, 20 years now. It's it's really hard to uh, to break them. Is is this because you, uh, is this because you like to, uh, 
because you don't like to command tab. I, I command tab. I command tab, but mostly when I'm bouncing back and forth between two applications, you know, uh, you know, A B A B back and forth like that. And if both of those applications dominate the screen mostly, or if I'm mostly on the keyboard between the two applications, I don't want to go over to the mouse. But I do work when I arrange things on the screen. I have I have arrangements of windows like I have a certain setup of how my terminal windows go, and then I have a certain setup of how my text editor windows go. Although text editor windows I have the least control over because once you get like a hundred of those open, which is not unheard of for me, you <laughs> arrangement goes out the window, and you're basically pulling from window list, uh, which isn't that bad. But for the, most applications, like my IM application, uh, my, my terminal windows, IRC windows, and web browsers, they are positioned on screen in their own little regions and have their own little growth patterns. Uh, that I can form to. So I can find quickly the application I want uh, and hit really big targets to bring them to the front without having to go down to the dock and hit the little icon or pick it out of the 18 other blue circles that are down there. Or I've, I've used drag thing too, or even just go over the drag thing dock and pick it out. It's much faster for, you know, almost unconscious for me to just, you know, push to the right middle and click to, on the corner of that terminal window that's pushing out the side to bring all my terminals forward and then quickly know where the, you know, this machine's terminal window is here and this machine's terminal window is below it. Like, it, it's, I guess it depends on, like, where I'm working, what the machines are that I frequently have, you know, but I eventually get homes for things, and I save those window sets in terminal. So, for example, at work, when I launched terminal, I had a keystroke that brings up my default set of windows, and, and I know just by looking at the, the size and position of the window, that's this host, that's that host, that's the logs for this host, that's my root window in this machine, that's, you know, and it makes it so much easier. I never have to read the title bars. In fact, all my title bars used to just say terminal, uh, because I would not rely on them to tell me where the windows were i rely on you know the, the position and shape of the window and then once i go into it i would look at my prompt to confirm that i'm not accidentally typing in the wrong place uh yeah not how we got onto that from oh from windows it's a great it's, it's a great topic yeah so and and the final final bit of since this is not really i guess this doesn't count as follow-up i will cut the follow-up here and say that's the end of the follow-up and okay as for topics for the show I've been spending all my time worrying about uh, getting ready for WWDC, so this the title of the show will be "I Got Nothing" because I have no prepared topic for the show whatsoever. But that wow. doesn't mean there's that doesn't mean there's not things to talk about, and I have some suggestions. But I'm sure you have some suggestions too. So, well, I'd, I'd like let's start with. I mean, really, I see this as very much a show driven by your creative intellect. So I'd like to first hear your suggestions, and and then I I have some as a fallback if those should be subpar. All right, so just before we came on the air, like literally just before, I saw this announcement on Daring Fireball that uh, that Brent Simmons has sold Net Newswire. Yeah, uh, and that seems like a story to me uh, worth talking about. The only other thing I, I I could think to think about was you know obviously assuming we record next week we'll be t- we'll be recording uh, talking about. Uh, what happened at WWDC? Because that'll kind of be dominating the news, I'm sure. And even though you will talk about the, exactly the same things with Gruber and Marco, it doesn't matter. I, I'm going to talk about them too because I, know, feel, I feel like I news. feel like we should de- definitely do that. I feel like maybe I, if this is the unfortunate thing about the timing of my move and and the slow processes of us finding a new place to be. Because if I had my full setup, I would say, well, why don't we do? And I'm just going to tell everyone that this would have been possible because there's no way. It's simply impossible now. So I'll just tell everyone how great it would have been. It would have been to get everybody together, you know, you, Marco, and Gruber, and maybe even a fourth person, to all uh, be on the show 
and it would be a special show. We just have some kind of special show, and all just everybody contribute and talk and and argue and reminisce about the wonderful time. We can't do it. Yeah, there will be time for that in the future, and I'm sure that will happen in real life without you. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> no, without recording it, hopefully. Yeah, nobody recording. You guys all sitting together at, uh, you know, at some uh, smoky bar in the, smoky, the, the bowels of uh, San Francisco. Yeah, but uh, but for this week, uh, you I think you talked about what could be happening at WWDC, but I think that's still worth talking about so those, no, are my two, those, those are my two things uh, what might happen at WWDC and net newswire being sold uh, and you can what are your suggestions well actually uh i i had seen this uh this announcement interview rather uh here that uh, i haven't had a chance to read it because it's it's quite long uh and, and who knew that people still did interviews uh in text form like this I, I, it's 2011 and yet there are still text interviews, it's transcripts and people who've typed things in. And this is, you know, in, in the way that I frequently joke that your stuff is long and very, very verbose. Uh, John Gruber occasionally will do quite the same thing. 5,000 words for a, for a single topic was my, the joke I used to have uh, for him. But this is, this is like the most in-depth interview about this. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal in the Mac community. The long, short, and the tall of it is. Uh, Net Newswire, as you mentioned, it's it's been uh, acquired in in its entirety uh, from uh, Bla- by Black Pixel, which is uh, run by Daniel Pasco, a friend of mine. And uh, it's probably safe to say, I guess I can can I say this that uh, Black Pixel are the guys I'm working with to develop the five by five app. They already said that themselves in the interview, if you had yeah, read farther. <laughs> yeah, I haven't gotten more than about a third in before we had to start the show, so. It, I guess I can say it, but yeah, it's it, so they're they're great guys. I've met Daniel uh, back at a, a RailsConf a couple years ago when I was speaking. Uh, he came up to me at the end. I'd never met him in person. He's a great guy, and they're based out of Seattle. Uh, and I, I believe that Brent Simmons is also based out of Seattle as well. Uh, so it it makes sense to me. But it's interesting because this app, Net Newswire, for me was the very very first uh, RSS newsreader that I ever used. And I know it'll be in good hands with these guys, but it's interesting because that's always the fear when something gets acquired that they're going to shut it down. And it it, it sounds like there's uh, that's not the plan. It sounds like this is very much a, a living, breathing app and will continue to be so. Yeah, they're not going to shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Yeah, yeah. Having only read half of the interview. Uh, you know, about this net, net news where acquisition, I think I can actually, in, as I usually do, turn this around and make it about me. <laughs> that the, the the thing about net newswire i'm first of all i'm, I'm a long time net newswire user i've been using it since not since version one but but since close to it and i very was very quickly a convert right to net newswire like it changed the way i use my computer it changed like the ratio of which applications i'm using at, at certain points i was doing the majority of my reading of web pages in the browser that was embedded in net newswire that may still actually be the case i'm not sure uh I just lived in the thing, um, and I love the synchronization between machines, and I love you know being able to queue up uh, stuff in in, in tabs. Uh, they're not really tabs, but you know you could open a web page in the embedded Net Newswire browser, 
And when you went onto another machine and opened that newswire, that opened web page would still be in there in this little side-scrolling list of all the little things you had open. So before Instapaper, that newswire was my read later button. I would just, you know, I would go through my feeds using using keyboard shortcuts, which I always thought of as the TIN slash RN keyboard shortcuts. I don't know who listening to this remembers what TIN and RN were, but they were a, a terminal-based, you know, character-based. I don't know how you would describe delay people. Uh, applications that you use from within a terminal window at a shell prompt that use the curses library or whatever to, to display text. And they had kind of like a command keys that were like vi where there was no modifier keystroke you would just type you know k to mark things as red not command k but just k or spacebar to go to the next on red you know and so on and so forth well net newswire whether intentionally or not i don't actually know if brent was basing his keyboard shortcuts off tin and rm but it sure seems like he was because there were a lot of the same uh shortcuts so i had i had used uh you know tin as my main using that newsreader way back in the day and it was nice smooth transition into this gorgeous gooey mac os 10 application they use the exact same keystrokes. Uh, and the other one that I love about, about this thing is that you could move the selection uh, in that newswire between the panes using the arrow keys. It just felt so natural, no modifier keys, so I could read news, uh, you know, read RSS feeds, look at the summaries, and look at the articles, and queue them up for later reading, all from the keyboard, all with simple single keystrokes. You know, it was just without having to touch the mouse and with a great experience overall. So that, that totally changed the way I, I do things. And I still, you know, I mean, if you look at my dock right now, NetNewsWire is running. It is running on every machine that I use, uh, and, and I've just been using it for years. But the thing uh, about it is that, well, first of all, I get frustrated when an application that I rely upon doesn't get updated as frequently as I want. And Brent talks uh-huh. about the struggles he's had with uh, having, you know, too many irons in the fire at the same time. The iOS version, the iPad version, revising the Mac version. It was just becoming too much to do all of that. And in fact, even b- before that, when Brent was just trying to do Newswire for Mac himself, just the support load alone of having this re- tremendously popular application was overwhelming him. And that's why he uh, went over to NewsGator and got acquired by them and to, just to get some help on the application. Right. And so there was, you know, that, that helps get, get his feet under him a little bit. But then when the iOS came out, that just, you know, spread him even thinner. Now, going, in, in, going back in time for a second, you're talking about that NewsGator acquisition. Uh, I interviewed him about that years ago when it happened on my uh, one of my first podcasts, which was called the Hive Logic Radio Show. He was nice enough to come on that and and talk to me about it. And it was really interesting because at that time, I mean, he that he there were, was really not much competition in that space as far as RSS news reading. It wasn't built into Safari, right? There weren't really many competitors. If you wanted an RSS reader on the Mac, that was it. I think it still is it. I mean, I know yeah. there are alternative applications, but like I remember at that era, the era that you did that interview, which I think I actually listened to, uh, NetNewsWire was the most popular newsreader in the world. Not the most popular newsreader on the Macintosh. In the right. world, and ah. that was at a time when when the world was like ninety five, ninety six percent Windows computers, that, you know, instead <laughs> of whatever it is now. And he, you know, it was just an unbelievably successful application. And I still think, it, with all the Mac news readers that are out there, that new, Net Newswire is at least the best suited to my needs for news reading. Uh, and you know, the fact that Safari does RSS reading, I don't think that is a factor at all in in the success or failure of Net Newswire. Uh, but on the iOS, I would say that NetNewsWire's iOS versions are not the dominant newsreaders for that platform. There are a lot of really good uh, newsreaders for iOS, um, and the competition is much stiffer there than it is on the Mac. I don't know if that's just because of the popularity of iOS or the gold rush, or it's just you know that's where the, the great developers are these days. But of course, Brent's there uh, with his uh, versions as well. But more recently, if you read about in the interview that 
uh, Brent had pulled out the guts of all his newsreaders, or not pulled out the guts, left the guts alone and made a new uh, core code base for all of his newsreaders. And he released NetNewsWire 4 Lite, I believe is the name of the product, which is the first product built on this new unified code base for the underlying stuff for, you know, getting feeds and managing threads and parsing XML and all that stuff. Uh, and then he was, you know, in an interview, he talks about how he was looking at how much work it would be, even though he's finally got this unified code base, how much work it would be to rebuild his existing applications on top of this new code base. Now, the thing about NetNewsWire 4 Lite is that it does much, much less than the current version of NetNewsWire for the Mac that I'm using, which is three point something or other, uh, which is fine because it's got Lite in the name, right? But the, my big fear was that the new version of NetNewsWire for the Mac, based on this unified code base, would also do much less than the current version of NetNewsWire, simply because Brent was always trying to trim features that either don't get used anymore or are too much of a pain to maintain. You know, it's it's a cost-benefit trade-off where you want to get like the the features that eighty percent of the people use, you know, eighty percent of the time, and then everything else gets cut because you don't want to spend time and energy maintaining a feature that only some tiny fraction of your user base used. But if you're in that tiny fraction of the user base, which I most decidedly am for a wide range of applications, including NetNewsWire. I was afraid that the application that I came to know was going to be not not dumbed down because that makes it sound like it's something you know it's it's not good to have it's better to have uh, more features and it's not good to be simplified. It, it, usually, it's better to be simplified, but I was afraid that it was going to move farther away from my specific tastes and needs as it moved more towards the mainstream. You know what I mean? And that's that's a something that's happened a lot in iOS, where uh, iOS encourages you to simplify because m- it, more people will be successful with your application. But right. as a you know, quote unquote power user, from you know to use that term from the '80s and '90s, I like the one that had all the bells and whistles. Or more specifically, I want my specific bells and whistles to stay. I'm perfectly happy for you to cut 90% of the features as long as the 10% is remaining is the exact 10% that I use. And of course, that's never going to happen. Uh, so this is a, a specific case of a more general phenomenon where if you use an application for years, you come to like take this perverse sort of sense of ownership over the three features in the application that you use. And if a developer is conscientious and developing the application actively, it's it's incumbent upon them to probably at some point cut your pet features simply because applications evolve, the user base evolves, and like what is accepted as a level of complexity uh, for an application changes over time. Uh, so you may be married to a particular esoteric feature and think, this is the whole reason I use this application. How can you remove it? Well, if you're the only one of you know 0.02% of the people who use this app who rely on that feature, the, the developer should cut it, and you're just out of luck. Uh, but it's sad for me when that happens. So I was really afraid that my, my net newswire, my application that I know and love, would change in ways that w- I would find uh, upsetting. And then I'd be like, well, do I have to find another newsreader that I like now? Can I adapt to this new way of using that newswire? It's just, it's stressful and upsetting. Mm. Um, the best applications that, this is a difficult balancing act. So the best applications that do this, like, I, I don't really know what the, the the success formula is. But when I think about what are applications that I've used for a long time that have evolved in ways that if I look at what what the application is like today and look at what it was like 10 years ago, they're wildly different, but at no point during that period of time did I feel like the rug was pulled out from under me. That's a difficult thing to pull off. A few that I can think of are probably BBEdit because BBEdit has just radically changed from what it was from, you know, in like 1992 or whatever. But at every point along the way, they've 
cut deprecated features slowly, giving you replacements for features, and just slowly like herded the user base along, even as they just mercilessly removed code, removed code, removed code. That change has actually been accelerating lately, and at some points I've been a little bit uncomfortable, but for the most part, they have managed that transition with this long, gradual slope of, uh, of deprecation and replacement uh, that I think has been very successful. And the other one I would say, this is kind of bad for me to say because I'm not a, a not an expert user of this application by a long shot, but I have been using it for, you know, since version 1.0 is Photoshop. Uh, Photoshop has, it's very different today than it was in, you know, version oh, yeah. 1.0 or whatever, right. right? But with the exception of the introduction of layers in 3.0, I think it was, there was... Every every time they make a new version, it's not a radical leap over the next. It's like we're refining, we're adding tools, we're co- we're consolidating, we're refining, refining, refining. And when you have a professional tool like that, that's the way you want to do it. So that at no point do graphic designers say, load up a new version of Photoshop and say, I can't find anything. I have no idea how this works. Now, you know, designers and anyone who uses a program every day for years will get pissed when like they change the keyboard shortcut for you know Command H does something that it shouldn't anymore. Like it'll little things will perturb them, but for the most part. It's not like they have to relearn a new application. Um, so th- those are two examples of applications I think have evolved in a careful, cautious manner. Uh, but that's not always easy to do. And in fact, it's, it's harder because like every feature that you wish you could get rid of, you have to support for longer than you think you should just so you, you bring everybody along with you. Right. Uh, and the final example I'll give, this is a, this will be a good test to see if you can do it the other way successfully on a big application is Final Cut Pro Ten which does look like a pretty darn radical reinvention of the way people who use Final Cut do their work. It's, it's akin to the kind of the, the uh, 2.5 to 3.0 conversion in Photoshop where they said, you know, channels are out and layers are in, and here's this new layer palette. Uh, and in both cases, I think, after people get over the initial shock like of layers, they said, well, you know, I, I'm used to having 10 million little Photoshop windows open and doing my chops, my channel operations, but I tried this layer thing for a week, and you know what? It's better. And, you know, period, end of story. You know, yes, it was a big radical change, but layers are good. I think the the graphic design community pretty much agreed. Photoshop plus layers equals good and got over their problem. Now, Final Cut Pro X, is it good enough? Is it better enough than the previous version of Final Cut? So that the the big bump in the road for people's smoothness of using their, you know, Final Cut on their color-coded keyboards with the keyboard commands exactly the same, and, you know, they know exactly how to use Final Cut Pro, the current version, then this 10 comes along, and everything's moved in different places, and maybe they change keyboard commands, and everything works differently, and the timeline is different, and, like, is that going to be better enough that people's crankiness over the change in the UI uh, will be overcome? I I think it will be, because I think from the little demo, and again, speaking as someone who does not edit video for a living, what the hell do I know? But from the demo that they gave, which was an, an amazingly good demo, and from the tiny bit of video editing that I have done, I can say that Final Cut Pro Ten looks like the advantages of working in this new way will quickly overwhelm the disadvantages. Modulo the stability question, reliability question, so on and so forth. That's always in there. Like if, if the program crashes more, if it can't read your old files, or all sorts of practical concerns. Assuming they get all the practical things right, and the only real problem is adapting to this new UI and workflow, I think it will work. So getting all the way back to NetNewsWire, finally, my hope for the acquisition, not that anyone cares what the hell my hope is, but my, my hope, <laughs> as much as that counts for anybody involved in this, is that this means that NetNewsWire, the next version of NetNewsWire, will still have all the features that I like. You know, we'll still, we'll, we'll nestle into my workflow nicely. Maybe there'll be a few things I want to adapt to, but it will still be like that power users tool, you know, the way I use it, or at least the, the three features that I want to, to stay there will still be there. Um, and and the, the only other thing I would say is that 
I think an acquisition, if the people who acquired it have more time to work on it than Brent did, that can only be good. Yeah, that definitely would be a good thing. Because that means that no, no matter what their choices are, uh, it means shorter time between versions. And if I don't like something, I won't have to wait three years to see if it gets revised, you know? So I'm mostly optimistic about the acquisition. Uh, and I'm very interested to know what Brent is doing next. Which is oh, a yeah. Secret, I actually secret, know. You know. I actually do know. Yeah, did You probably knew about this acquisition, too, didn't you? Uh, I knew a little bit about it. I didn't know as much as is apparently revealed in the Staring Fireball uh, write-up interview, the 10,000-page interview, but I did know some things, but um, I, I certainly did, do know what uh, Brent is up to next, and I can tell you that I like it, but I can't speak about it. Well, I'm looking forward to it, because anytime you know, there's, there's a few... In my pantheon of developers, there's a few little places in like you know the the the, uh, the Mount Olympus of developers, and up on there are basically the developers of applications that I've used like for my entire life that I feel like are part of my computing life. Right, you know? right, right. And and the people up there are like you know Brent Simmons with that Newswire, Rich Siegel with BB Edit, uh, you know uh, Bruce Horn <laughs> with the Finder, and who, who was, right. was it? Larry, Steve, Bruce, and John for the original Finder. You know. I, I, are you, you going to get Photoshop to John Knoll? Who was, who was the original Photoshop guy? <laughs> I don't know. You don't know off the top no. of your head. But anyway, uh, but yeah, Brent is up there with them. Uh, and, and that's all it takes. You make one application that I use for years and years and years and can't live without, you get a, a spot on my personal Mount Olympus of software developer. So whatever he does next, I look forward to it. And, and even if it's not an application that I use for years and years, I, I wish him the best of luck with it. Well, that about does it for this week's show. Uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, nosy. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We'd also love it if you could take a minute to rate the show on iTunes. Uh, it really, really helps us. It helps us uh, with new listeners finding out about the show, and it also really helps us with uh, getting great sponsors to put in front of you guys. So go to iTunes, look up Hypercritical, and rate the show. Hopefully, you'll rate us well. Uh, also visit 5x5.tv to find out about uh, other shows and older episodes of this show. Thanks to iStockPhoto.com slash 5x5 and MailChimp.com for making this show possible. And as always, thanks so much for you guys for tuning in. We'll see you all again next week. <laughs>